This is the full story. I'm Tom Kuzer. This is an encore broadcast. During the height of the pandemic, federal funding, eviction moratoriums, and housing services helped individuals and families who were at extreme risk of losing a secure place to live. Today, those systems are largely gone. Affordable housing is scarce in our region, and in Connecticut, the number of people who don't have homes is on the rise. Tricia Lewis is a clinical assistant professor in the Health Science Department at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut, and she studies the impact that housing insecurity has on individuals and family health. And she joins me now in the studio. Professor Lewis, welcome to The Full Story. Thank you for having me. Certainly. How are health and housing connected? That's a great question. There's uh, a number of ways health and housing uh, are connected. So when we think about how housing, you know, where we live might have an impact on health. A lot of times we might think of direct effects, as we call in public health. We might think of something like lead poisoning in older homes. You know, for children, we might think of rates of asthma in areas with high levels of air pollution. But there's also indirect effects. Again, another word we might use in public health. When we think about the affordability crisis that we have right now, about 75% of low-income households here in Connecticut paying more than 30% of their full income on on housing. If we think about the rate of evictions here in Connecticut, if we think about you know, people having to move frequently from house to house and the insecurity that that brings, we can think about these indirect effects of not being able to afford food, not being able to pay medical bills. You know, there's a saying that the rent eat for, eats first, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so you, you might pay your rent first before being able to access some of these other health promoting things. There's also, of course, a mental health effect as well. If you are frequently moving, if you have this instability of where you're going to be able to live next, if you're going to be able to provide for your children, uh, you know, that can really wear on an individual as well. So is that like a stress-related impact on health. So for for people who are housing insecure, whether it's poor housing conditions or none at all on the other end of the spectrum, that kind of stress impacts their health? Right. The poor housing conditions itself or the affordability, the ability to like afford adequate housing for you and your family. So that can, you know, raise your stress levels. You know, there's a connection between stress and cortisol, the stress hormone, we call it. Uh, And over time, that can, of course, turn into uh, higher blood pressure, hypertension, all these different physical health issues, but also mental health issues of depression. So I've, in my qualitative work, I've interviewed a number of residents here in Bridgeport locally, as we're very close to the Bridgeport line here, Mm. uh, and in New Haven as well, who have struggles uh, with paying the rent, with uh, moving around quite frequently, with having been homeless before or facing eviction. Uh, and, you know, some of I've mostly interviewed women and the women who've talked to me about it have talked about this feeling of hopelessness and not being able to uh, make ends meet and just not being able to escape from this, uh, this burden, not being able to provide a safe place uh, for their children. And so that wears on, on someone's mental health as well. Are women more affected by the connection between health and housing than men? I'm not sure there's any research looking at whether women are more affected by the or the, more, the more pathways. vulnerable to it? Yes, women are more vulnerable to housing insecurity broadly when we look at things like evictions. For example, here in Connecticut, 
I think it was just last year, the year before the Connecticut Data Collaborative produced a report on on evictions and who was most likely to be evicted here in Connecticut. And women uh, were at higher risk for eviction, particularly black and Latina women in Connecticut. How new is the recognition that there is indeed a connection between good health and, and housing security? Is that something recent or does it go back a ways? I think there's been uh, for a, num- a number of decades now a connection between, for example, homelessness. If we think of the most severe form of housing insecurity, we think of uh, you know being unhoused or, or, or facing homelessness. Uh, so there's you know been for decades now research looking at uh, people who've lived unhoused or in homeless conditions and that connection to health, being exposed to the elements, for example, uh, the stress of, of being homeless, having to be out in the streets and more exposed to violence, uh, for example. But this connection between um, what we often call less severe forms of housing insecurity, uh, but they're, you know, they're, more, they're more widespread. So missing rent payments, facing eviction, having to double up with uh, other people, living with other people um, because your inability to afford housing, uh, that literature is really taking off over the last couple of years, uh, especially. In August of uh, 2021, you wrote an opinion piece for the Connecticut Mirror, the online uh, newspaper. And in it, you mentioned research conducted by the state of Connecticut, quote, indicates that the lack of affordable housing can also cause barriers to the management of chronic diseases, such as type 2 diabetes. Uh, how so? Right. That's drawing on um, Danya Keene's work in Yale School of Public Health. So she's done quite a bit of work here in Connecticut, uh, mostly in New Haven. But she's looked at the ability to manage diabetes, so taking your insulin, affording insulin, and what have you, and uh, residential insecurity or housing insecurity. So for folks who don't have a steady place to live, who have to move around quite a bit, who are spending disproportionate amounts of their income on rent, for example, then the ability to afford uh, your insulin, the ability to be able to manage your diabetes with uh, you know, a proper diet and, and, and proper medication becomes more difficult. Housing costs and threats of eviction have historically hurt women, especially uh, black and Latina women. Uh, in the past. Have you noticed that in your research? You mentioned women before, but more specifically, black and Latina women? Yes. So the research that I mentioned before from the Connecticut Data Collaborative Mm. noted that uh, women, particularly black and Latina women, are at higher risk of eviction, and that's here specifically in Connecticut. But then there's also um, nationwide research uh, out of the eviction lab in Princeton that also highlights uh, across the country women are more likely to be uh, evicted as well. How about kids? Um, Is there research that takes a look at the effect of housing insecurity on kids specifically? Yes. So with children in particular, we're concerned about their their stability in the home for children in order in order for them to thrive, they need routine, they need stability, they need to feel safe uh, in their homes, right? So when uh, you're moving from residence to residence, that that security there is is lost. There's also uh, there could be disruptions in their schooling as well when they have to move uh, residences and they they miss out on schooling days. There's uh, you know issues with if your parent is is spending disproportionate amounts of uh, their income on on housing and not able to afford some of your other basic needs uh, that you need to meet, uh, then you could be missing out on health appointments, on, on proper nutrition, what have you. We wanted to talk, too, about 
solutions, if there are any, to this problem? Now that federal support and state protections have ended, what are people living on the edge of homelessness or insecure housing uh, supposed to do about keeping healthy? Do they create their own system or community to get the support they need? You mentioned in, uh, in the articles that you've written, you've interviewed a number of people who are in these situations. The op-eds you mentioned that I, I published with the Connecticut Mirror, I draw on some of the interviews I've done with women across Connecticut in 2021. So actually really at the height of... Mm, right in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah right mm. in the middle of it. And during that time, we still had eviction moratoriums in place. Not to say that people didn't get evicted during that time, because we did have <clears throat> evictions still uh, take place. A couple of the women that I spoke to actually you know, called me back a couple of months later telling me that they, they had been evicted. And these are two women I'm thinking of in particular that had young children in their home. So evictions still took place during the eviction moratorium. But since the eviction moratorium was lifted, we have seen a huge increase. And that was lifted towards the end of 2021 here in this state. Um, we've seen a huge increase in evictions. And so I had some numbers here. Yeah, in 2022 alone, we had 20,585 evictions which was up from pre-pandemic rates of eviction as well in the state. So now you're facing, you know, rising inflation, uh, rising rental costs, rising housing costs. You might have had job loss or you might have been unemployed for a certain part of 2020, 2021 during the uh, height of the pandemic. And now rents are increasing. And so it's harder to be able to afford somewhere to live. So as far as what folks are doing, uh, Mm. scrambling to try to uh, find a place to live. We have one of the lowest vacancy rates in in the United States here in Connecticut. So there's very little housing available and even even shorter supply of affordable housing. It's estimated that we need about 85,000 units of uh, affordable housing here in this in the state that we don't have right now. I guess what you're saying (laughs) is finding housing Mm -hmm. in in light of the protections are disappearing at the end of the pandemic. Finding secure housing is a solution, or at least the start of a solution, to to healthcare, to keeping healthy, to making sure that people on the edge do have a way of, of keeping track of their uh, all their health, mental health, physical health, dental health, what have you. Right. So housing is just a basic necessity of where to live, right? You know, if we, um, you know, we all learned in college, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, you know, towards the very bottom is is physical safety and and housing. And so in order to meet all of these other, uh, you know, health needs that we have, whether we're talking about, you know, nutrition needs as far as physical health, whether we're talking about safety and peace of mind when we're thinking about mental health, we need to have secure housing in order to meet that. Are there any successful examples that you know of where health needs were met even though housing was less than secure? In other words, can the two issues be at all separated and dealt with individually? That's an interesting way to phrase it. (laughs) Can we address health without addressing housing? Yeah. Um, I don't think so because you, you need you know, as again, as as humans, as families, as as people, we need uh, secure housing in order to live healthy lives. So, can we tackle the housing affordability crisis in this state in in many different ways? Yes, I think we can. But I, 
you know, to try to address health needs across the state without addressing some of the fundamental causes, uh, as as we call again another public health term. If we're if we're thinking about housing as a as a fundamental determinant or uh, social determinant of of health outcomes, then I think we need to address that in unison with you know providing more healthcare access and and outreach to to communities. In one of your opinion pieces, you quote former UN independent expert on extreme poverty and human rights, Philip Alston, who said uh, succinctly, "Poverty is a political choice." And mm-hmm. then you went on to say, uh, quoting. Given that we're able to provide shelter for the unhoused during the pandemic and prevent families from being evicted, even after job loss, we can choose to protect Connecticut families from housing insecurity post-pandemic. Yep. So these supports were put in place because of the pandemic. I guess the question is, can these kinds of systems really be sustained over the long term oh, yeah. apart from the pandemic? Or are we just choosing not to keep people housed and healthy? That's a great question. (laughs) We were able to do it in a time of health crisis of the pandemic. We have an ongoing housing crisis, which, you know, myself and many other public health experts would also call a public health crisis. If we have a housing crisis, uh, then we also have a, you know, a public public health crisis in tandem with that. And so if we were able to uh, implement those changes uh, during a pandemic, why can't we continue to do something like that. So um, I mentioned, you know, like housing people during the pandemic. So uh, throughout New Haven in particular, they uh, opened up hotels for people who were unhoused or experiencing homelessness. So instead of overwhelming uh, the shelters, congregate living areas to lessen the spread of the virus, they opened up hotels so people could uh, live there. I interviewed a couple of people who had actually stayed in those hotels, and they told me that it was just it was really dignifying to just have a place of their own <laughs> to stay. And uh, one woman's story comes to mind in particular. She was looking for a job at that time and having a place to come back to that, you know, you could cook your own meals in the little kitchenette they had, you know, like you can uh, manage your own time. That was like a jump off to be able to find a job and then secure housing later on. So if we just implemented some of those same kind of interventions we did during the pandemic, like housing uh, people experiencing homelessness in hotels, uh, like doing eviction moratoriums, the rent assistance that we did, emergency rental assistance through Unite CT. If we had ongoing programs like that to support housing, we might see some better health outcomes. Do you think the health problems that people are having in connection with housing problems, does that rise to the level of crisis right now? I think it is, yes. Because the pandemic crisis is what moved a lot of officials to do things. Right. If it's not a crisis in the eyes of enough officials or individuals, nothing will happen. Right. And I think that's why we see a lot of tenants' rights activists across the country, but here in Connecticut, too, sounding the alarm like, hey, this is this is a crisis. It was already we already had a housing crisis prior to the pandemic. But now, you know, with the job loss we saw with rising inflation now, the rising cost of housing, it's uh, you know, it's it's become even more severe. And so we need to treat this as the public health crisis that it is. Tricia Lewis is a clinical assistant professor in the Health Science Department at Sacred Heart University. She studies the impact that housing insecurity has on individual and family health. Professor Lewis, thanks for your time today and your insights. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Certainly. 
As you just heard in my conversation with Tricia Lewis, there is research underway that examines the connection between affordable housing and the self-management of type 2 diabetes. The person who is looking into that joins us now. Danya Keene is an associate professor of social behavioral sciences at the Yale School of Public Health. She's also the director of Yale's Housing and Health Equity Lab and a commissioner for the Elm City Communities Board. And Professor Keene joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to The Full Story. Thank you so much for having me. Certainly. How did your lab come to investigate the connection between affordable housing and type 2 diabetes self-management? I think for most people, that's not something they would connect. Yeah. So our team at the Housing and Health Lab, we're looking at all the different ways that housing policies and this current severe lack of affordable rental housing affects health um, and also racial health equity. One of the reasons we decided to focus on diabetes is because diabetes is incredibly costly. It's becoming more and more prevalent and it disproportionately affects individuals who are more likely to have problems with their housing. Interesting. So what's the connection between stable housing or unstable housing and maintaining your blood sugar level at an appropriate uh, number? Yeah. So one thing that our team has done, we've done a lot of we did a lot of early work interviewing people who low income residents of New Haven and other Connecticut cities who had type two diabetes and really trying to understand the ways that their housing shaped their ability to engage in all the behaviors that are required to manage diabetes, including eating a healthy diet, checking your blood sugar, going to the doctor, exercising. And not surprisingly, we found that it's pretty hard to focus on doing all of this stuff when you are worried about whether you're going to be able to pay the rent, where you're worried about where where you're gonna sleep the next night, or if you're moving around from place to place. We followed up this interview data with analyses of of survey data, nationally representative health data, and we really see the association between having stable housing and these diabetes outcomes. In terms of your study, how do you define unstable housing? Is it total lack of a place to sleep? Is it uh, a place that um, is so expensive it impacts your ability to pay? Is it... uh, having to move constantly in order to to have a place to go to. Yeah, so this is one of the challenges of trying to measure the impact of lack of housing on health. There's so like the the list you just gave, there's mm. so many ways that our current lack of housing shows up. It can be that the place that you're renting is poor quality and doesn't have a stove or a place that you can cook food or you're paying too much for your rent or you're moving from place to place. So all of these things matter. And one of the ways that we're trying to encompass all of that in our work is by looking at um, federal rental subsidies, which provide assistance so that a renter is only paying 30% of their income on rent and that they essentially make housing affordable. One of the things that happens in this country is that we have these really long waiting lists for these rental subsidies. Only one in four individuals who is eligible gets a subsidy. And here in New Haven alone, we have 25,000 people on these waiting lists. And so that creates kind of an experiment where we can compare people who are receiving this housing resource with people who are waiting to receive this resource. 
And we assume that this resource gives people access to better stability, better affordability, better quality, and all of those things. So it kind of creates an experiment. Your work also examines racial health equity. Uh, and before we talk about that a bit more, maybe we should define what racial health equity is. And, and also, um, I'd like to ask what work you're doing in connection with that. Yeah. So we know that racism shows up in all of our institutions and systems in ways that, in countless ways, that undermine health and produce these vast racial disparities in health outcomes, including diabetes. And we know that housing and housing policy is one of those institutions where racial discrimination shows up. There's today, um, Black renters, particularly Black women, are more likely to experience eviction than other groups. And that is the result of this long and ongoing history of racially discriminatory housing policy that's excluded Black people from housing opportunities. Any ideas for solutions based on your ongoing research to um, approach or even achieve racial health equity? Well, I think it requires addressing racism in all domains, not just housing. For example, mass incarceration is another policy domain where racial inequalities are leading to poor health outcomes, and that actually affects people's housing options, too. So it's going to require, you know, an all Hans and Duck, all institutions approach. Um, in the housing realm, you know, there's a, a lot of different approaches that we can do to improve housing opportunities for people of color, um, including addressing exclusionary zoning policies that contribute to segregation. We can look at eviction prevention policies that help promote housing stability. And we can increase access to housing subsidies, the ones that I was just talking about that provide access to affordable housing and that we have such long waiting lists for. Those are all things that we can do. In, in the in the same vein as the housing subsidies, I'm wondering, do you think policies that prevent eviction generally can advance racial health equity and uh, help manage, help people manage chronic health conditions? Yeah, for sure. So we know that black renters, as I mentioned, are are most vulnerable to eviction, also Latinx renters. And we, we know that eviction has both short and long-term impacts. It, it, it is a source of trauma that has profound health impacts. It also produces this cascade of losses that sets people up for future housing instability. When people are evicted, they it's hard to go to work. Children miss school. And it becomes nearly impossible to rent a subsequent unit if you have an eviction record. So it's really a significant cause of homelessness. So preventing eviction, I think, has to be at the top of our policy priority list. One one new policy in Connecticut that is seeking to do that is right to counsel legis legislation that was passed in, in 2020 that provides tenants who are facing eviction with access to uh, an attorney. Uh, we talked about, uh, we've been talking about health generally, but specifically the connection between affordable housing and type 2 diabetes. Uh, I'm wondering if uh, your research at some point will include a closer look at other chronic illnesses, um, high blood pressure, for example. Yeah, yeah. You know, diabetes is just one example of a chronic condition that we could look at. And actually, in our study on diabetes, we are measuring blood pressure. We're measuring other things that are food access, fruit and vegetable intake, other things that 
not only affect diabetes, but also affect other health conditions as well. And one of the mechanisms that connects a lot of these health chronic health outcomes is stress, both stress that impedes the ability to engage in healthy behaviors and also stress that has direct where, you know, creates wear and tear on the body. It causes blood pressure to go up. It interferes with sleep that has biological implications. We often think about exposure to lead paint or mold or poor housing conditions, which is certainly important and also connected to a lack of housing, but stress affects the body and leads to trajectories of chronic illness, premature aging. Stress is getting under the skin and, and making people sick. And stress is also shaping health behaviors. When you're stressed out, it's you know hard to focus on all the things that you need to do to, to be healthy. And so, yeah, so stress is, is really key to, the, to this understanding of how housing affects health. Does that kind of stress on children initiate chronic health conditions, conditions they, they don't have yet? For sure. We know that exposure to stress across the life course builds to create later life health outcomes. We also know that things like eviction and homelessness are a source of trauma for children. And and there's emerging research suggesting that that can have lifelong implications for their health and well-being. Is this an open-ended study? Yeah. So we're currently, we have a cohort of individuals who we've recruited who are on waiting lists for these rental subsidies in Connecticut. And we're following them over the course of three years to understand how their health changes, hopefully when they get off the waiting list and into subsidized housing is our hope for them and for our research. But we can look at changes in their housing over time and changes in their health over time. Will you be issuing a report at uh, at some point, perhaps after the three-year study of the uh, individuals you mentioned, that will be available to, oh, I don't know, legislators, for example? Uh, yes, that's definitely one of our goals, um, to make the findings from this work publicly available, not just in the academic literature, but in reports and way, you know, ways that are accessible to, to legislatures. During the pandemic, or the height of the pandemic, the city of New Haven worked with hotels to provide people who didn't have a place to live, a home basically with something temporary. Uh, your lab did some research that the impact hotel housing had on these adults. What, what did you find when it came to, to that kind of a, an arrangement? Yeah. Um, so the, so the pandemic, this pandemic related funding really created sort of an experiment with new forms of shelter as part of an effort to reduce COVID-19. As you mentioned, the city of New Haven um, with funding from, from FEMA moved individuals from congregate shelters at Columbus House in, into hotels. And, and we did, we worked with Columbus House. One of my students conducted interviews with, with individuals who had moved into hotels. Um, and the interviews really highlight how these non-congregate forms of shelter where, where people had their own room uh, with a door, how it provided stability, privacy, dignity. And, you know, this really, the interviews really showed how this helped people have a sense of stability in their lives and kind of get control of their health. And, and actually, it seemed to help people kind of get on their feet. And it suggested that this may be how people actually get out of homelessness when they have this kind of stable environment. So yeah, I think it provided an opportunity for how we could do things differently in the future 
if funding was available to provide these kinds of shelter. How did you determine that based on uh, questions that the people who were in the hotels, based on questions they answered? Or what was the method by which you determined that there was a positive outcome for people having these individual uh, rooms or sets of rooms to live in at least temporarily? Yeah. So we didn't measure direct outcomes. This was very early research. We got in there right when people were moving into these hotels and talked to people in a, it was qualitative research where we talked to people in an open-ended way about their experiences, what had changed for them, what was different for them living in the congregate shelter, how living in these hotels shaped their well-being and their behaviors. So we do need future research to follow up with quantitative outcomes to really look at these at these impacts. And I, I'm fairly certain that someone at Yale is working on that now. Last month, the city of New Haven uh, moved out a number of people who were in an area called the Tent City uh, near the uh, West River in New Haven, uh, built by people, again, who, who didn't have a place to go. How might the health of those people be affected by forced removal? And I suppose that question could be applied to anyone who is forced to leave wherever they're calling home, at least temporarily. Yeah, I mean, I think that's another important way that housing affects health. People have attachments to where they live, and, and being forced out of somewhere can be a source of trauma. But I really think we have to think of this tent city as a symptom of a larger affordable housing crisis and a larger homelessness crisis. And, you know, if we want to not have tent cities, we need to prevent homelessness with the appropriate housing resources, and we need to fund the homelessness response so people experiencing homelessness can have the services they need to, to get out of these situations. And I think, you know, another reason that people uh, were staying in Ten City is, is because the shelters were not meeting their needs, and that connects back to what we see with the hotel environment, the, the hotel environment, which a much more acceptable environment for individuals who wanted to stay with their partners or whose past trauma experiences made it hard for them to be in a big open room with a lot of other people. So I think, you know, that's another part of this solution to addressing these encampments. And some of the solutions you're talking about really address the, the root problem, not necessarily the uh, the symptoms, which need solutions as as well as dealing with just the solutions, sort of a losing battle? Well, I think, you know, we need to address the root causes, which is a lack of housing. But in the meantime, we, and I think always, we will always need an emergency response to homelessness. People are always going to have emergencies in their lives. And when people experience an emergency where they lose their housing, they need access to an environment that pro that is safe, that provides dignity, that provides privacy, and that ultimately can help them get on their feet and get the resources they need to get out of that environment. So I think the two will always go hand in hand. In addition to the research that you're involved with, you have another position which gives you a, another perspective on uh, housing problems. You're a board member for Elm City Communities, the Housing Authority for New Haven. Uh, what does that agency do? Uh, how does it address the housing needs of people in the city? And uh, what does what window does that give you on the problem? Yeah. So Elm City Community, the Housing Authority of New Haven, um, like other housing authorities throughout the country, it provides federally funded subsidized housing to low-income renters in either project-based housing where the unit itself is subsidized 
or in the form of vouchers, where a resident has a voucher that they can then take to rent a private market unit, where and they pay only 30% of their rent. And a lot of my current research and my former research has focused on examining the health impacts of these housing subsidies and also the health costs of the unmet need for subsidies. As I mentioned earlier, we have, there's fewer than one in four individuals who need these subsidies are getting them. We have long waiting lists for something that is a basic human need. And so a lot of our work is really trying to document what are the health costs of having all people wait for so long for a housing subsidy. And those are also economic costs. One, in one recent study, we find that when we compare people who are waiting to receive the subsidy with people who receive it, they are much more likely that people are waiting to have uncontrolled blood sugar. If that's going to produce diabetes complications down the road, that's also an economic cost associated with our decision as a country not to better fund these subsidies. You've supported a bill in the Connecticut legislature known as HB, House Bill uh, 6554, which would allocate $50 million to homelessness response programs. What kind of an impact do you think this bill would have on Connecticut? So we know that our homelessness response system, which is goes hand in hand with addressing the root causes of, of housing, we know that that system has experienced budget cuts over the last decade. And the lack of funding really affects this the, our homelessness response system's ability to do the work of connecting people who are experiencing homelessness to resources, to case management, preventing homelessness. There's severe workforce shortage. And so what this bill does is it refunds that system, providing money for youth homelessness, cold weather shelter, ensuring that the frontline workers who are working in the system are paid a living wage and creating job stability there. It's really, really important part of addressing homelessness and improving housing insecurity. Danya Keene is an associate professor of social behavioral sciences at the Yale School of Public Health. She's also the director of Yale's Housing and Health Equity Lab and, as we mentioned a moment ago, a commissioner for the Elm City Communities Board. Professor, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing uh, your insights and perspectives on uh, the pro problems associated with housing insecurity and health. Thank you so much for having me. We're exploring the link between health and permanent housing in today's show. Connecticut is the second state in the country to get official federal recognition for ending homelessness among veterans. And now the goal is to end all forms of homelessness in the state. Services like Open Doors of Fairfield County are working to achieve that goal. It's based in Norwalk and strives to bridge the gap between housing and homelessness. With me on Zoom is the executive director of Open Doors, Michelle Condorino. She also serves on the board of directors at the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Welcome to the full story. Thank you so much for having me. Certainly. Uh, please tell us more about uh, Open Doors and your work in Norwalk. It's quite a quite a, an ambitious goal to uh, step in between folks who are just about to lose their home and homelessness. Yes. So Open Doors, uh, we were incorporated in 1984, really heart and foundation as homeless service providers. So we do operate the only homeless shelter here in Norwalk. We serve both individuals and families. We also conduct street outreach 
So ensuring that whether people are sheltered or unsheltered, they receive the same level of case management and the same drive towards housing. Because any homeless service is not about a bed, right, in a shelter. It's about getting somebody back into sustainable housing. In addition to that, we have a, a soup kitchen, serves two meals a day, seven days a week. But then about mid-90s, recognized that the biggest barrier uh, for people exiting homelessness was the lack of affordable housing. So we began to build and develop uh, units. We currently own and operate 55 uh, affordable and deeply affordable housing uh, units for people transitioning out of homelessness. And we provide both short-term and long-term case management. But the last couple of years, I think we really kind of came to that conclusion that if we actually want to end homelessness, we have to stop it from happening to begin with. That we can't do this from the shelter's front door. We need to start pushing upstream. And So, uh, so, so you're we, basically talking about treating the problem yes. at least as intensely as treating the symptoms, which are people without homes, but finding right. out why it is they're losing their homes and, and doing something about that? Yes. So I always say that homelessness in and of itself is not a real thing, right? We don't define anybody as being housed. I don't know why we define people by the lack of housing. In reality, homelessness is a symptom, um, and it's a symptom of the failure of every other system. <laughs> so we really are trying to attack the systems, right, that are failing people and connecting them to opportunities to increase their income, save money, you know, change uh, employment, right, change into jobs that have career tracks and livable wages, helping to stabilize people in their homes. And so we have this uh, new like homeless prevention arm of our services that really targets those areas. Access to free clothing, our food pantry. We um, built a medical behavioral health clinic on our property, community facing, right? Not just for those we serve experiencing homelessness, but for the South Norwalk uh, community. And that's a partnership with Norwalk Community Health Center. And then we launched a financial opportunity center which uh, helps people connect to income benefits, employment, workforce development, and long-term financial coaching. And we're just trying to assess, right? Where are people really struggling? Let's try to break, knock down barriers that are preventing them from succeeding. How do people find themselves at some point without a home? There are a lot of drivers to uh, homelessness. And I think uh, people tend to think about mental health and substance abuse. Chronic um, medical conditions um, often play a part. Life events, divorce, a major medical issue, a loss of a job. But we cannot ignore how expensive certain areas, particularly of this state, are. And that that cost has risen significantly. In, particularly in this last year, but certainly over the last several years. And so people are just being priced out of housing. Um, I hear that so often. People will come in and say, my rent went up $100 a month, $200 a month. The highest I have heard is $1,000. Um, a $1,000 so, increase monthly? 
monthly increase. That's incredible. And because they hadn't done an increase in, um, like I think in the past five or 10 years, there was no fighting that increase because Connecticut has no standard, no legal obligation on landlords to cap rent raises at any any level. You talked about essentially going after the systems that place people in these positions of, of having to leave their homes or, or not having homes. Do you get much support from those involved in those systems as far as your efforts go to um, essentially counter what they're doing? Yeah, I think somewhat. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, the governor has really put a lot of emphasis on workforce development. There's been a lot of resource going into that. And we've really tried to target in there because that's one of the best ways for somebody to have housing stability is to have a livable wage job that is going to be able to keep up right with the the increases in housing costs. You know, on the mental health substance abuse side, I think that there's systems that are not targeted for those there should be targeted for. So sometimes the programs have too many barriers and people who have too many symptoms are not able to negotiate those barriers and therefore fail out of service. You know, our homeless service system many years ago went through this conversion to being like as low barrier as possible. And as we've gone upstream right into prevention, we've tried to carry those things with us because we see how often you need a, a document or You've got to like make all of these scheduled appointments or otherwise you're out. We don't want to operate like that. And we're trying to help people negotiate those systems. I was reading an article in The Hour, the daily newspaper in Norwalk. It mentioned that the city has been a model for fighting homelessness. And I'm wondering, uh, how do you measure that kind of success or, or lack of it is maybe the case elsewhere? And, and what is Norwalk doing that other cities and towns in the state should or could replicate? Yeah. So uh, the way we measure that um, is by how many people are reaching out uh, looking for our homeless service system. Uh, so anybody who thinks they may be experiencing homelessness or is currently experiencing homelessness should reach out to 211 and go through the coordinated access network. That's how people, one, are diverted, right? And there are resources to divert people from the experience of homelessness. And we just have to connect people to them quick enough that they can use them and be effective. So that's one. The other is unsheltered, right? How visible, how uh, many people are experiencing unsheltered homelessness in your community. Norwalk is successful because it has a high level of collaboration. The mayor and the city itself, our housing authority is incredibly collaborative with our homeless service system. And then just the system itself, um, there's a multitude of agencies that take different aspects. And we work together. We're all aligned into one goal and initiative. And then we do that work with integrity and really are are determined here to get to the end. You mentioned collaboration. And I want to ask you a question about um, public awareness and perhaps cooperation from the uh, general population at large. Uh, the recent demolition of an encampment in New Haven, known as Ten City, 
where the folks who were living there, those were their uh, homes at the moment. Uh, they were, again, removed from that property, and that provoked different responses. Some people were outraged by it. Others supported the eviction, the evacuation of that area. Uh, what do these mixed reactions say about the general public's perception of, of people without homes, do you think? Yes. It's so funny because they're both right. Encampments are very unsafe, both hygiene, right? And, and you know, um, as you know, we've all been through talking about infectious diseases for, for many years. You know, they they don't have running water and things like that. So so they can be unsafe that way. Certainly violence can occur in those. But mass evictions and sweeps are not the response. So I think people are right to say this isn't okay to have, but it's not the people who are staying there that should be the recipients of that negative energy or or attention. You know, there are people who have who have been failed, quite honestly, by our system, and we need to assess them and actually have plans for them. But just wiping out people's belongings isn't really, I think, the way to address any issue. And people don't just disappear when you do that. Um, they just go somewhere else. <laughs> you mentioned uh, the last couple, three years as being a uh fairly challenging. And, and you joined Open Doors, I understand, as executive director in 2019, so Correct. pretty much on the cusp of, of the pandemic. Uh, how has Open Doors and the people that you work with, how have they been, how have you been affected by COVID-19? Did it really change the kind of work that that Open Doors had to, to do? I won't say that it changed the kind of work. It changed how we did that work. Mm-hmm. We also knew that, you know, when the health crisis hit, that that was actually not going to be the real crisis. So we had an initial response, but knew there was going to be a serious economic impact from this. And that often those economic impacts hit low income earners the hardest. And so we began to project. That's why we launched our financial opportunity center to help as many people as possible keep housing stability and not fall into homelessness here in Norwalk. But yeah, I mean, we had to, you know, decompress the number of people we had in shelter. Certainly, you know, we still wear masks even today, you know, on, on site. We have social distancing uh, requirements. But as a team, I think we were stronger because we were working together to serve people in in the time when they needed us the most. And there was a lot of pride in that. You know, we could be anywhere, we could be home, we could be protecting ourselves, and yet we're choosing to keep people alive uh, because that's really what we did. You know, had we shut our doors, I don't know how many people would have died. And so we're really proud of all of that work and it really made us rethink the way we do things and how many people we have sleeping in one room. And, you know, are we doing these things because we've always done them that way or because they're the way they should be done? Well, the changes in how you do your work prompted by the pandemic, are those permanent changes now? Some are, some are not. Uh, we've increased how many people that we will uh, bring into shelter, particularly as hotel usage 
will pretty much permanently end with the governor's emergency powers. So some of the things we've gone back to, but yes, I would say a lot of the things that we adapted and thinking about how to create respectful environments. And um, just because somebody's experiencing homelessness doesn't mean that we can essentially warehouse them right in a room. We have to be thinking about what, what provides dignity to people. Because one of the most challenging parts of the experience of homelessness is that feeling of you have no value, that you've, you know, you're in the worst moment of your life. And if you come into a place that maybe reaffirms that, we're not doing our job, right? Our job is to remind people that they do have value, that they can return to housing, that nobody will be able to tell that they were homeless at one point in their life, right? There's nothing on you that says that, but often people who've gone through traumatic events believe that, right? That everyone can tell. And that's where I go back. Homelessness is not a thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a real thing. So, you know, there is no identification. The opportunity centers that you talked about, teaching some basic skills, financial skills, et cetera, to the, uh, the folks who come to you, do you find that they lack those skills, uh, forgot how to do them, were just never really taught some of the basics about um, finances and, and uh, you know, living day to day. And that's why they find themselves in a bad situation when things get tough. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a shocking lack of education around financial management and basics of banking and, you know, uh, when you pay bills and the cadence of that and all the way up to what affects your credit score. Right. Your credit score is incredibly important for any purchase that you make, a credit card, anything that, you know, what interest rate you're going to get. And yet so few people, and I'm not talking income level, right, uh, across income levels, there's a, a lot of misunderstanding of how what we do on a daily basis affects our overall financial health. And so yeah, we do everything from the basics of you should have a bank account right? Stop doing payday loans and things like that that are costing you money. But to, you know, how do you use credit card points, right? How do you, you know, maximize those opportunities? What are the, the little cheats, right, that we all do that just get us a little bit ahead? But I will say that as far as budgeting goes, people with lower incomes can teach people with higher incomes about budgeting way more than the reverse because they do that. They have to be so creative in how they um, meet their needs and keep themselves afloat. So I don't think it's a, you know, I think there's a lot of misnomer that people who are poorer are poorer because of something of their own fault. Like they're not budgeting their money correctly. That's not true. They just don't make enough money to afford, you know, the cost of living in, in these areas. Can homelessness in Connecticut really be completely eliminated? So we always talk about like a functional zero. We can't stop every single person from, you know, experiencing homelessness. But there's a lot of people who fall into homelessness who shouldn't have. There was no intervention, you know, at the initial stage and things snowball so fast. But I think where our ideal system is that if somebody does, they're, 
immediately identified and connected to a housing resource and you know within 60 days back back in housing so that's really what an ideal system looks like and we're pretty far from that right now and you know the real lack you know we talk a lot about the lack of affordable housing which is very true but we have a lack of housing in general in Connecticut and so you know there was a point this summer you know, we had a 1.4% rental vacancy rate in Fairfield County. <laughs> what can nothing, you do yeah. in a market like that? Sometimes the issue is like, yes, there's, uh, you know, a lack of affordable housing, but there's a lack of housing and that becomes really challenging, you know, for people to, to negotiate and getting people back into housing has become very, very challenging. In fact, our length of stay in shelters almost doubled uh, since this summer because because of that issue. Hmm. How long do people stay in your shelters? So we used to be at 112 days. Now we're at 208. Um, we're significantly higher than the rest of the state, but also our discharges to permanent housing are double the rest of the state. So we're holding on to people longer, but they're going to the right places. But it is challenging. You know, we want people out quicker, but we just can't find opportunities for them to do that. Is there a correlation there between the amount of time people are spending in your facilities and then successfully finding secure housing afterwards? You mentioned it's more than uh, doubled yeah. and it's much more than the rest of the state. Does one, is there a cause and effect there? So I think it's actually being, we are incredibly low barrier here in our shelter. That's why People are staying longer and seeing positive outcome because we don't have a lot of rules and structures in which people are being like either they're leaving because they don't like the structure or they're being asked to leave because of breaking rules. You know, the, again, the goal of shelter is not the bed. It's not to keep somebody in in shelter. It's about where they're going. So we always say that here, like it's not about tonight. It's about tomorrow. So let's not hyper-focus on, you know, their behavior tonight, because that doesn't help anybody to discharge them to unsheltered homelessness or to another shelter, and then we're just circulating a problem versus anyone actually resolving it. Michelle Condorino is the executive director of Open Doors of Fairfield County, based in Norwalk, Connecticut, an organization working to and homelessness, or I guess I should rephrase that, working to help people find their more permanent, secure homes. Yeah. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much. That's it for our broadcast today, an encore presentation produced by Fatou Sangare, Sophie Kamizi, Sayana Bosch, and senior producer Ann Lopez. I'm Tom Kuser. Thank you for listening to The Full Story.